Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details. From the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell, and West. The Chamberlain, he's got it. Jerry West made it from the other side of the midcourt strike. To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. From a time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe. From way outside. Got it! Oh, man! Gets it to LeBron. For three for the win. Yes! LeBron James! And rings were handed out like candy. Here's Jordan. It's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Garrett Bougay, and it starts right now. Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty. I'm your host, Garrett Bougay, and with me this week, a very special guest. He is a fellow sports business classroom alum. He uh, also works on the website Early Bird Rights with Jeff Siegel, and uh, he also has a... uh, a really good uh, Twitter account that uh, that you can follow. It's Blazers by Sagar. Sagar spelled S-A-G-A-R. Sagar Tricka. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Now uh, we're going to discuss all things Portland Trail Blazers, as uh, you are a, a huge Portland Trail Blazer fan. And uh, we're also later in the episode going to break down uh, the 2019 year in film so far. We've both seen uh, a few interesting ones. We're going to break some of those down that we thought were, were interesting. But first, Sagar, I wanted to uh, to get your thoughts on the, the Blazers offseason, and we'll start right at the beginning with the NBA draft. Of course, the, the Blazers had the 25th selection, and they ended up taking Nasir Little, a guy who a lot of people projected to be a top-10 talent. What were your thoughts on on that acquisition by Neil O'Shea? I was quite impressed, actually. I didn't expect Little to fall as far as into the mid twenties, uh, but I figured, though he is a flawed prospect, it was worth a shot that late in the first round. Yeah, I mean, he's a guy to me that seems like he's got all the athleticism in the world and all the size that you would want out of a player that that can play either the three or even the four as he bulks up a little bit more, and. Uh, you know, you, you can never have too many of those guys in the, in the current NBA. For sure, absolutely. Now, uh, a couple of uh, a couple of big moves that the Blazers did this offseason was extending their couple of stars in uh, in Damian Lillard and C.J. McCollum. Lillard getting that supermax extension at four years, one hundred and ninety six million. Certainly, a lot of money to pay for for him, but uh, of course. Him being the franchise star and, and so loyal to the organization, you, you've got to pay that money, right? Absolutely. Uh, there was no doubt about it. There's no question. Uh, he is arguably the best player for his history. If not, he's top three right now. Uh, and you don't let those kinds of players walk away. Right. And, uh, you know, he's also known as being one of the best leaders in the NBA as far as the locker room. Uh, he's a guy that's been known to go and and have conversations with the 15th man on the roster and treat them just like uh, anybody else. Uh, so so certainly I agree with you there. The other guy they extended, a C.J. McCollum, Lillard's backcourt mate. McCollum getting a three-year, $100 million contract. Uh, so what are your thoughts on uh, on that extension and, and really locking in that backcourt duo? I'm a fan of it. I've seen some uh, debate about whether the McCollum extension was the right idea. 
I think it's a very prudent idea to get a guy, uh, a very good skilled player, uh, for less than his max, when you know that he, as a second best player, can lead you to a conference finals. I think that's not a bad thing. Right, and uh, you know, just in terms of pure one-on-one scoring, he's absolutely one of the, the best in the league at doing that. Uh, and you know, now that they've got those guys locked up for the long term, Neil O'Shea really can focus on on building the the appropriate roster around the two of them. And uh, we're going to get into some of these other moves that uh, he did this offseason to try to build around those two and, and build upon that conference finals appearance you referenced from last year. One of the first moves they did was uh, was a trade in which they, they traded Evan Turner, who I always thought was a tough fit given his lack of outside shooting uh, paired with, with McCollum and Lillard. Uh, and, and they get a guy in Kent Bazemore who's maybe a little bit more of a threat from the outside uh, and, and similar sized. For sure. I thought that was actually a very good move. Uh, at first, I wasn't a fan just because, as a fan, you don't like to lose players that are fun off the court, that are good people. And Evan Turner is a great person. He's very funny. Uh, but on the court itself, it was a very smart move to turn a guy who wasn't a very good fit with the, with Logan McCollum into a guy in Bazemore who is a very good shooter and about the same uh, in terms of salary, same contract approximately. Uh, it's a pure upgrade. Yeah, and, and what are your thoughts in terms of uh... – your your lasting memories of Evan Turner as a Blazer, of course, you know, as soon as he came, a lot of people, including myself, were saying he was he was overpaid by Neil O'Shea. But, you know, if you talk about just last season alone, that Game 7 performance against the Nuggets to get them to the conference finals was one for the ages. Absolutely. It was an overpaid from the very beginning. I think everyone knew that when it was first reported uh, in 2016. But I would argue that as much as he's frustrated over the last three years, that Game 7 in Denver uh, was worth it. Yeah, he uh, especially in that fourth quarter, he really stepped up and, and, and provided some much-needed offense for that, for that Blazers team. And, of course, CJ had a, had a, had a monster Game 7. Uh, another move that I, that I personally liked was the, the Rodney Hood contract. Um, you'll have to clarify this for me because I think the, the original reporting on that contract was a two-year, $16 million deal, but last I've checked, it, it, it comes in at uh, two years, $11.7 million. Correct. That is the, uh, the taxpayer mid-level that he got. Okay, and he also got, a, I believe, a, a player option on that second season. Yes. But uh, much like uh, Turner in the fourth quarter of that game seven, Hood stepped up in, in huge moments in that series, especially that four-overtime game where he had big shot after big shot. He really played well offensively. And uh, unlike Turner, I think he is a really good fit offensively uh, with that star backcourt. I agree completely. Uh, that Denver matchup was very good for him in that they didn't have a wing, that, a third wing that was big enough to guard him. While their top two were guarding Damon Cedra, uh, he was able to pick off on mismatches and uh, excel in that series. Yeah, and it was it was refreshing to see, you know, he, he obviously struggled at times in his uh, stints in, in Utah and Cleveland, but the guy certainly has loads of talent and, and pretty good size as well at 6'8". Uh, but uh, moving on to some more troubling news, the Blazers announced earlier this offseason that Yusuf Nurkic might be out until February. Of course, Nurkic suffering that, that horrid leg injury near the end of, of last season. And, uh, you know, the original reports were that maybe he would just miss the first couple of months, but now missing, uh, projected to miss more than half the season. That's a tough blow. It's significant. Uh, prior to his injury, he was the team's second-best player uh, last season. Uh, and he, he, it was a coming-out party for him last year. So to see a guy go down is unfortunate. And you hate to see a guy miss half a year, right? Uh, but the team showed that uh, in the back part of last season and the playoffs that they can find ways to win without him if needed. And they'll have to do that for longer. Yeah, and uh, a big part of that was uh, was Enos Cantor, who they got at the uh, the buyout time. Uh, he filled in uh, admirably and, and played through a, a lot of injuries in the postseason. 
And uh, he ended up, uh, you know, not re-signing. Uh, he, he ended up signing with the Boston Celtics on a two-year, $10 million deal. You know, not a lot of money for a guy that, uh, you know, still seems to be a solid center. I'm sure that was a little bit disappointing to see him let go. For sure. It was sad to see a guy that had embraced the city and the fan base so well. Uh, it was sad to see him go. At the same time, knowing the logistics of how he would have had been paid um, to stay in Portland, given... Portland's cap restrictions. Uh, it wasn't a surprise. Now there there was a there was a report from from Cantor's camp that uh, he, he claimed that he was given six minutes from the Portland uh, management staff to to make a decision. And I'm curious if you think that's a, a truthful claim. And then also, did the fact that free agency was was pushed forward six hours and it started at six p.m. Did that kind of force a lot of GM's hands in terms of having to move quickly like uh, like a lot of guys did? I don't think that the, the shift of Fridge starting six hours earlier was actually that much of a, of a difference maker for GMs. I just thought that the same stuff happened a little bit earlier uh, as it would have. As for Cantor's six-minute claim, I can't speak to that. I don't have any sources or uh, I can't report anything on that. I know that... Uh, Damian Lillard said that it was 45 minutes, which is not much better. But in a business uh, as competitive as the NBA is, a lot of players are dealing with uh, deadlines pretty quickly. Everything in July moves quick. Yeah, and, and especially when a bunch of offers were made before 6 p.m. even started, it seemed like we were getting news you know, 15 minutes or even 30 minutes before free agency was supposed to begin. So certainly it was a, a frantic uh, time period there at the at the very start of free agency. So obviously not having uh, Yusuf Nurkic until likely February, uh, you know, losing Enos Cantor, who was a great replacement, you know, leaves a little bit of a hole there at center. And uh, Neil O'Shea ended up pulling off a trade in which he traded uh, Maurice Harkless and Myers Leonard in a deal for uh, the Miami Heat's Hassan Whiteside. Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts about that deal and, and getting the a, a very talented big man, but a, a big man that has had issues not only in the locker room, but uh, in, in a lot of ways with his effort? I thought the trade made sense, given they were unable to keep uh, to keep Cantor. Uh, at the same time, I figured it was a high price to pay. I feel like, uh, especially in Heartless, uh, a wing is about 6'9", 6'10", who can defend very well and shoot about league average, maybe it's not a little bit lower, uh, has significant value. And I thought that letting that guy go for a player of Whiteside's caliber was not worth it. At the same time, Whiteside has shown that when he's engaged, he can be a very good player for a team. Uh, and with regards to his off-court issues, I trust in Lillard and Coach Terry Stotts and Olshay in that trio to... Uh, yeah, and I would think in, in, in the same way that, that Cantor was able to to uh, to thrive at least as much as he can on the defensive end in Portland's drop-back center scheme, I think Whiteside fits in that scheme as well. Yeah, it makes sense theoretically. I know that uh, Whiteside has had uh, some issues with chasing blocks in the past uh, in Miami. I hope that the, the drop-back scheme can help mitigate that a little bit. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I certainly agree with you that it, it did seem like a, a pretty high price to pay, not only Harkless, but, you know, Leonard certainly has, has struggled throughout his career, but he had moments in the Western Conference Finals. He had that 25-point first half where he just absolutely uh, lit it up from three. You know, he's got some talent. He also provided a little bit of versatility in, in that Portland Trailblazer front line with his outside shooting. Uh, but I'm also curious your thoughts as to you know the confidence level that the organization has in Zach Collins at this point because you would think you know a former number ten overall pick in his third year uh, you know this is typically at a, a time where young players really start to blossom prior to that Whiteside trade it looked like you know maybe a, a guy like Zach Collins would get a, a great opportunity to start and get a lot of minutes. Yeah, I was under the impression. Entering the offseason, that he would start at the five because 
2017, Portland invested at number 10 pick overall. Then you traded two first round picks to get there. Um, so I figured that entering year three now, it would be time to see if that heavy investment in him paid off. Uh, and if not, to let him grow in the fire itself. Uh, but it seems clear now that they view him as a four rather than a five. Interesting. Yeah, that's... Um... That that also leads to kind of my next my next statement, which was you know they also let Al Farouk Aminu out the door. He ended up signing a three year twenty nine million dollar deal with the Orlando Magic, and you know with the departure of Harkless in that trade for Whiteside and Aminu, they really lost a lot of that uh, that depth and that wing play. Uh, so it, it does seem to me that they're you know either going to play smaller at the three and four spots or they're going to go super big. Uh, which uh, doesn't seem to be the way the NBA is necessarily trending. Yeah, it seems like, based off reporting and what we know about the team, they're going to go big and start both Collins and Whiteside in the frontcourt. Uh, and then with Dane and Cedra in the backcourt, they'll start either one of Bazemore or Hood at the three. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the I think a big a big reason that that I think they ended up letting Aminu and Harkless go had to do with with the three point shooting. They just weren't as confident with those guys knocking down shots. Uh, but but as you've stated, both of those guys are are really good defenders. And you know, again, if you're going super big a lot of times with Collins at the four, I don't think you're you're adding a lot from the uh, from an outside shooting perspective. For sure, he is a uh, a decent shooter fourth position, uh, given he's as big as he is, he shoots the ball reasonably well. At the same time, that's not better than what Harkless or Amino were given. Right. Now, what are your thoughts in terms of when Nurkic returns? Uh, is there any possibility, I personally don't think this would work, but is there any possibility that Nurkic and Whiteside would be out on the floor at all together? They wouldn't start together for sure. I think they might theoretically play some minutes together. Uh, but I wouldn't expect much of it. Yeah, I uh, I don't necessarily believe that would be that effective. Although they would have a, a decent amount of rim protection out there on the floor. Uh, but but yeah, my my other concern, you know, with the whole Aminu and and Harkless absence is defending those pre premier talents at the wing position. Your LeBron Jameses, your Kawhi Leonard's, your your Paul Georges of the world, and. Now that, uh, as you said, that they might play Hoodsum at the three or Baysmore at the three, those guys, uh, you know, just don't seem to have the the bulk and the frame to deal with some of those bigger forwards. For sure, and that's definitely a concern that they opened up this offseason that they didn't have last year. Uh, I'm not sure what their plan is, to be honest. Yeah, um, it seems like in terms of a lot of the minutes, it's going to be Anthony Simons coming into the backcourt and playing some. We'll talk about him a little bit more in a bit, but uh, another uh, another backcourt exit was the likes of Seth Curry going on a four-year, thirty-two million dollar deal and, and going to the Dallas Mavericks. What uh, what are your thoughts on on the departure of Curry and and uh, losing a little bit of shooting there in the backcourt as well? It's unfortunate, but not really surprised. Uh, when he signed with us last year, uh, for as cheap as he did, it was clear that it was a, a proven deal for himself, uh, so that he was healthy and. Uh, still capable of playing reasonable minutes, and he did that. He played very well for us. So to see him get three million dollars is no surprise. And I'm happy for him. Yeah, he um, he certainly had had his fair share of, uh, of of solid moments in the playoffs as well for that team. I think they're they're going to miss him a little bit. Uh, but uh, you know, J- Jake Lehman, another guy that at times during last season started for them at the four. He went to uh, to Minnesota on a three year, eleven point five million dollar deal. So we've talked a lot about uh, some of the outgoing players, but but let's bring it back towards more of the the guys that are they they brought in. They brought in Mario Hazonia, you know, a former top five overall pick, but has largely disappointed uh, in so far in with his time in the NBA. What are your thoughts of, of his signing, and, and do you expect him to uh, be a part of the rotation? I think he will be. I think he'll be playing some minutes off the bench. Uh, he's shown flashes both in Orlando and uh, more so in New York, uh, being able to pull off these uh, impressive plays. Uh, my hope is that playing with guards as capable as Willard and McCollum will help him thrive. Uh, I believe 
those two players make their uh, teammates better. And the hope is that Hazonia can take that and become a legitimate stretch four option. Yeah, I mean, the, the talent, the talent very much is there, similar to, to Whiteside. You know, they, they've got all the tools. Hazonia was a top five pick for a reason. He's got uh, crazy athleticism and, uh, you know, decent range on his jumper, but just hasn't really been able to put it together for whatever reason. And and uh, as you stated, Portland's culture in their system is so sound that maybe they can get more out of guys like that than, than most other franchises can. Yeah, that's the logic. Now, uh, Pau Gasol was, a, was another recent signing. He's, uh, you know, obviously past his prime at this stage. He's in his uh, uh, upper 30s. But uh, another guy that I think uh, knows how to execute the, uh, the drop-back center scheme, a real high IQ player, and uh, another guy, you know, with, without Nurkic out there that just adds a little depth to the roster. For sure. Uh, we figured they would sign a, a big man for their 14th roster spot. Uh, and to get a guy like Pau Gasol, who's a future Hall of Famer, who knows, it's cliche, but who knows how to win late in the playoffs, uh, has value. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the the roster is certainly, there, there's, there's a lot of change, but there is some upside with the roster as well. They've still got some young talent, and, of course, they've still got their, their foundation of, of stars as well. Uh, did you get a chance to watch any of, the, of Portland's uh, Summer League? A little bit, yeah, here and there. What were your thoughts on, uh, you know, the, not this year's first-round pick, but the previous season, Anthony Simons, uh, uh, entering his second year now, looks like, again, a guy, especially with Curry's absence in the backcourt, that, that there might be some minutes available for him. What did you think of uh, of his performance and how he's looked? So I saw two of the three games that he played in. His first game, apparently he wasn't as great as we were hoping for. But I saw his next two, um, in which he did everything that I wanted him to. Uh, when you're looking for guys who you want to have, uh, you hope will have an impact at the NBA level uh, this upcoming season, you want to see them dominate in summer league. And in the two games that I watched, he did. Yeah, that's uh, that's a that's a really good sign, especially you know for a guy that uh, is entering year two. He should look a little bit of an outlier against some rookies. Uh, you know, there there shouldn't be as many of those butterflies in the stomach. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it, it's good to see that uh, that he's got the ability to score the basketball. They're going to need a little bit more scoring out there on the floor. Uh, you know, you, Lillard and McCollum can only do so much from a scoring perspective. You need you need some other guys. So, you know, with this, basically, this roster overhaul, what, what are your, uh, what are your thoughts as to if the team got better, if it got worse? I think that they got worse, uh, I think that their, uh, their floor this year is a lot lower than what it had been in the last two or three years. Uh, the moves they made were clearly high upside in that if everything pans out, they could win 30 games again. I don't think that will happen, but it's a possibility now. It just gets riskier. Yeah, you know, they're, uh, they always seem to be, Portland always seems to be a team that I'm a little bit lower on after their offseason, but then they always, uh, you know, do better. Than, uh, than I expect them to, and I expect that to happen again. But but I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I wasn't uh, super high on that. You know, there's uh, seven rotation players, essentially, are, are gone from a team that made the conference finals. And, uh, you know, again, considering that that, uh, that was their, their first appearance in a conference finals with this core, uh, you'd think that you'd want to, to just build some continuity and, and maybe have some younger guys develop, but uh, Neil O'Shea was not satisfied, and you've you've got to uh, you've got to commend him. At least it was it was a brave off season, and uh, he he definitely made some bold moves. For sure, he showed uh, no lack of uh, guts in what he did. Uh, clearly, a lot of high risk moves, a lot of moves that uh, rely on young players to develop, which is never a guarantee. Uh, but it'll be just to see what happens. Yeah, so on the offensive side of the ball, you know, especially with this, with you talking about that they might go with a with a, a couple of bigs out there with even uh, Collins playing at the four, uh, but then also getting a little bit more shooting with, with Bazemore or Hood playing the three spot, do you expect this team to be better offensively than they were last year or, or uh, about the same or worse? That's a good question. I think without Nurkic lineup until later in the season, 
it will probably look worse. Uh, it'll rely a lot more on Lord McCollum uh, pulling some dead weight, especially early on as players get acclimated to each other. Uh, but eventually, I do think that'll come back to around what it was. Yeah, um, I. Uh... Yeah, I agree that, that Nurkic is going to be a big absence. You know, Whiteside, even though he is a, a, a pretty good, um, you know, pick-and-roll guy, uh, I think Nurkic really excelled in that role. Nurkic is a better passer for sure. I think that's one of the most underrated skills about his game. Uh, so, yeah, not having that out there is going to hurt them a little bit. And, yeah, playing the two bigs also is going to going to cramp the spacing a little bit because, yes, as, as much as – you know, Aminu and Harkless were criticized for their inability to hit shots in big moments in the playoffs. They were at least, you know, capable of making threes, and the defense at least had to respect them a little bit. Yeah, I think uh, the biggest reason that they let Aminu and Harkless go was that come playoff time, opposing teams over the last two or three years were okay leaving those guys open uh, to double team Lord McCollum. And just during those two guys to hit threes, and they didn't hit them at a high enough rate. Well, and, and and I would almost say that you know for Aminu, I think he he did hit them at a high enough rate up until this previous postseason. So it was very much like a you know we're only focusing on what just happened as opposed to a larger sample. But but yeah, it's true that uh, you know especially especially last postseason it, it was a struggle. Again, even though they they made the conference finals and and both of those guys' defense was so important to that. Uh, but yeah, moving moving on to kind of a projection for the defensive side of the ball this upcoming year. What are your thoughts as as far as that's concerned? I think this has been a team that largely has outperformed their talent due to their system and their coaching. Uh, but uh, again, a lot of changeover, and uh, again, without Nurkic, who I think is a really good defensive player, and without those uh, you know those two wings in Aminu and Harkless, defense might be a little bit more of a challenge. I think so too. I think it'll be a lot more of a struggle. Uh, Whiteside's obviously a very talented player, uh, but it's a good time for him to learn the system properly. Uh, Collins, again, has, is very talented. He's had issues with foul trouble in the past. Uh, but I think the biggest concern on defense is losing those bigger bodies in Aminu, Hardless, and even Evan Turner to an extent uh, to guard those bigger forwards like LeBron James, like Paul George, like Kawhi Leonard. That they don't have that anymore. It's going to be a big issue. Yeah, and and their inability, really, I think, to to be able to go to some of those smaller lineups. Like you can't really play Hood or Bazemore at the four, like you could play Harkless and Aminu. So you know, yeah, will those those super big lineups that maybe they're more forced to to play now really hold up over the course of a full season? Yeah, it's they chose they really in, in their moves they signed guys either at the two or the three on the wing or uh, fully grown fives they kind of ignored the four spot altogether yeah I guess I am overlooking potentially if Hazonia breaks out he's a guy that maybe has enough size to play a little four I think it's worth mentioning uh, Anthony Tolliver as well oh yeah uh, I do think he will get into the four uh, as a stretch four I don't know how he's uh, going to perform defensively, uh, which will still be a challenge, I guess. Yeah, he's getting up there in age, but he's certainly a solid vet that uh, that will knock down shots and, and knows how to you know be in the right position on the defensive end of the floor. So, yeah. so uh, Sager, I'm I'm curious what your projection is for this upcoming season in terms of of win totals, where you think they'll be seated, or you know if you think they might uh, have trouble making the playoffs at all in a in a in a brutally tough Western Conference. My guess is that you can step back and win between 45 and 48 games. Uh, so still a very good team. Uh, I think they make the playoffs as either a 5-7 seed in that range. Uh, but because the conference got better, it will be a lot harder. Yeah, and uh, you know, I think the interesting part is that I don't think the conference got better at the very top. I think it mostly got better at the bottom and middle portions uh, of the bracket. So, yeah, making, you know, I, I think we, we've seen in previous years where uh, you've had teams with the in the ninth, tenth spots with with forty five plus wins missing out. I think that very well could be the case again this year. 
it's really possible. It's a very competitive conference this year, so it'll be fun to watch. Yeah, I, I very much look forward to it. You know, the Blazers are one of my favorite teams to watch on League Pass. Damian Lillard and, and C.J. McCollum alone are worth the uh, the, the price of admission. Uh, so, uh, yeah, let's let's move on now. We we, uh, we went through the Blazers stuff that I had. Uh, unless there was anything else you, you felt like mentioning about Portland before we move on to uh, the, the 2019 year in movies. Let's talk movies. All right. So uh, we decided that uh, we're going to talk about a good chunk of the movies we've seen this year, and uh, we're going to start with movies that uh, you know have come out more recently, and and we're going to do spoiler-free discussion on the first batch of movies that we're going to discuss. And then uh, for any of you listening that uh, don't want to be spoiled on later stuff, we will uh, I will be sure to mention when we're getting into spoiler territory for uh, for stuff that came out you know earlier in the year. Uh, but let's start off with uh, with Toy Story Four. And, uh, Sagar, what were your thoughts on, on the fourth entry of this classic series? I loved it. I thought it was a lot of fun. Uh, Pixar is obviously very good at making people feel certain emotions that, uh, that they want people to feel. And Toy Story 4 was no exception to that. Yeah, I, um, I certainly really liked it. The, uh, and, and yes, they're... There, there was plenty of heart and there was plenty of emotion in this one. I didn't feel like, uh, you know, it, it quite hit the, uh, the, the levels of the first three. I found this to be the weakest one, um, and, and I think a large part of that is I think the first three movies, the heartbeat was really focused in on, on Andy and the fact that he was largely absent in this movie uh, took a little bit away from, from the emotional core. Uh, but uh, certainly, I, I think it was arguably the funniest movie in the entire series. For sure. The, there definitely seemed to be an emphasis on the, uh, the one-liners, the comedy, in the writing, which, as a fan of comedy, I was very appreciative of. Yeah, a lot of the, the new characters they introduced to the franchise, Forky, uh, was was absolutely hilarious. The the characters played by uh, Key and Peel also brought uh, a lot of good laughs. Um, you know, the, the, the other big complaint I thought was, you know, the, the idea that because they introduced these new characters and these new characters, despite the fact that I liked them, got a lot of screen time, was that the original supporting cast, guys like, you know, characters like Ham and Slinky and Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head, Rex, Jesse and Bullseye, they didn't really get a lot of screen time and they weren't given their, uh, you know, proper moments. For sure. You know, even Buzz Lightyear did not get... The, uh, the kind of screen time that he did in the first three movies. Uh, it was a very stark change from what they had been doing earlier. Yeah, but, um, you know, despite the fact that I'm I'm referencing a lot of my complaints about it, I still thought it was, was an excellent movie and, and one of the better movies Pixar has released in some time. Uh, and, and I absolutely love the, the Toy Story franchise, in large part because I, I am actually of a similar age to, uh, to Andy, so I grew up watching these movies and, and being of a similar age as Andy throughout the films. Likewise. Now, uh, you saw a movie that, uh, that I haven't gotten around to yet, a part of the uh, Fast and Furious franchise, the new Hobbs and Shaw film. What were your thoughts on that? So, this film was my introduction to the Fast and Furious franchise. I hadn't seen any movies before that. Oh, interesting. Uh, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I, um, I've seen, uh, uh, I think I've seen the first three, then I watched seven, uh, and, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, I, I like moments of the movies. I'm, I'm not the biggest car guy, uh, but, uh. But they're, they're certainly ridiculous, and, and I think uh, after, I think, number four, they went more towards the over-the-top action uh, you know, type of stuff. And again, I haven't seen the movie, but just from watching the trailer, seeing the scene with, uh, um, with the rock hanging outside the car, basically holding on to a helicopter, it just looked absolutely like ridiculous fun. It absolutely was. It doesn't take much to see the trailer and understand that they've taken a hard departure from the original idea of car racing, um, that's very much not what this was. Well, that's that's actually, uh, that's appealing to me. I think I'll, I'll check it out then. And the, the other thing, I, I actually read an article that I thought was really funny was the fact that Jason Statham had something in his contract where he could only take a certain amount of punches. 
And, uh, like, mainly just for the fact that he wants to look like the macho guy, and if he's getting beat up, that's bad for his image. But I, I just think it was hilarious that he would have something like that written into his contract. I didn't hear about that. And that it's not surprising to see uh, certain Hollywood stars want to maintain their egos, but it's still pretty fun. Yeah, um, I will definitely uh, be sure to check that out. Uh, a movie that I saw that, that you didn't get around to yet is a movie called Wild Rose. And uh, this is honestly, uh, if, if I had to, to, to make my list right now, this would be my number one movie of the year. Uh, this is uh, a movie about a, um, a young woman with, uh, with a couple of kids who is just actually, as the movie begins, she's just being released from prison. And she also is a person that uh, you know, has a lot of musical talent and, and wants to chase her dreams as... Uh, a country singer and she feels like she needs to move to Nashville to make that dream come true. Uh, but uh, the movie is a lot about um, her, you know, struggling with the balancing act of taking care of her responsibilities for not only herself as an adult, but her two young children while also still trying to pursue her dreams. That's interesting. Yeah. It's uh, it's very much like a star is born type story, but uh, yeah, I, I definitely recommend it if uh, if anybody anybody listening gets a chance to watch that one. Uh, another one that uh, that we both saw was uh, Spider Man Far From Home. This is the most recent uh, MCU uh, project, and uh, it's uh, the the first movie in this new phase of films. And I really think it was the perfect movie to to kick off the next phase of the MCU. Obviously, you know, the, the events of Avengers Endgame, which we'll, we'll talk about a little bit later, were, were very serious and, and at times pretty bleak. So, you know, it was it was really good to just have a fun time at the movies. For sure. This was a feel-good movie. Uh, Tom Holland is a great actor. Zendaya and Jake Gyllenhaal, great uh, co- uh, supporting actors. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, of course, like a lot of the, the Peter Parker story, it is a bit of a coming-of-age situation, and, uh, you know, Tom Holland's Peter Parker still in high school in this in this second Spider-Man movie, uh, at least as far as the MCU. And, and you mentioned it, but yeah, Jake Gyllenhaal, I thought, was absolutely fantastic as Mysterio. And, uh, you know, the whole Peter Parker and MJ dynamic, I thought, was, was really well done, and it was unique and, and different from some of the other adaptations. For sure. I appreciated that compared to Spider-Man Homecoming, um, they cast Zendaya in that and didn't really use her that well. They didn't give her much screen time. Right. For how good an actress she is. I appreciated that in this movie there was much more emphasis on her, her relationship to Peter, uh, and just giving Zendaya a bigger time to shine because she's a very good actress. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And maybe that was intentional. Maybe, you know, they, they wanted this movie to have more of a focus on that, so they kind of, you know, withdrew it from the first film and, and focused more on Peter and, and, you know, Tony Stark's relationship. But, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Of course, I think that's still in theaters, if, uh, if any of you listening want to check that out. Now, you saw a movie uh, called Unicorn Store starring Brie Larson and Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, I didn't I didn't get around to this. Apparently it's on Netflix, but what were your thoughts on that one? Interesting. It was not what I expected. Uh, I'm a fan of Brie Larson in general. Uh, I've seen a lot of her work, so I'm a pretty big fan. Uh, this was her, her directorial debut, actually. Uh, oh, okay. Given, given that it was her and Samuel L. Jackson who both starred in Captain Marvel, I figured that there was that chemistry already there and be really good. Uh, and while I thought that both her performance and Jack's performance were very good, the story was not what I'm hoping it was. Okay. Well, yeah, I, I heard nothing but uh, stories about the fact that Brie Larson and Samuel L. Jackson became like best buds on the on the set of uh, of, uh, of Captain Marvel. So not surprised at all that uh, that they would work together again. Um, so so I uh, I recently saw. Quentin Tarantino's ninth film called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and uh, I absolutely loved it. It's uh, it's it's in my top three uh, this year. I right now I would rank it fourth out of the out of his filmography out of the nine, right behind Pulp Fiction and Glorious Bastards and Jackie Brown. I thought the you know the performances from Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, they were all fantastic. The period detail, of course, this movie takes place in, in Los Angeles in 1969. It was absolutely stunning. 
And uh, one of the one of the interesting details I, I found about Quentin Tarantino and you know how much detail he goes into on these things. He actually made sure the songs that were on the soundtrack for the movie were actually played on the radio stations on the two days in 1969 that the film takes place. That's very detailed. I didn't know that. <laughs> yes. And uh, the, the last 30 minutes of the movie is, is quintessential Quentin Tarantino. So if, if you've liked his previous work, uh, I definitely recommend this one. Uh, it, uh, it was really fantastic. So um, a, another movie that, uh, that you saw that I haven't gotten around to yet, this is uh, one that's had many movies in its franchise, and that is Men in Black International. So, Sagar, what were your thoughts on, uh, on the newest MIB? I loved it. Uh, I had, again, this is, I was new to the franchise. I hadn't seen any previous Men in Black movies. Oh, um, okay. Uh, but seeing the trailers with Heather Thompson and Chris Hemsworth, uh, I knew that they had good chemistry already from their time on the set of Thor Ragnarok a couple of years ago. Um, so I wanted to see this, and it was a lot of fun. Um, the chemistry was very clear, um, and the writing itself, the comedy they wrote into it, into the script, um, was very enjoyable to me. Yeah, and one of my favorite comedians, Kumail Nanjiani, was, uh, played a, a, a small alien character that I saw in the trailer. How did you like his, uh, his role? He was very good. He, he, every line he gave was perfect. That's that's really good to hear. And and I will say the the fact that you haven't seen the original Men in Black is is pretty shocking to me. I think you should definitely, if you like that the newest one, I think you should definitely check that out because that is a a sci fi classic. And and frankly, it's my favorite Will Smith film ever. For sure, I'm I'm very slacking on movies prior to this decade, so I need to go back to that. Gotcha. All right. Well, um, the the final one that we'll do without spoilers uh, is is a is an HBO documentary series called Leaving Neverland, and uh, I assume most of you listening have heard about this. But of course, it's about Michael Jackson and the allegations that uh, he was a child molester for most of his life. And despite the fact that this was not easy viewing, it's it's four hours long, uh, and you know it's not easy do. Viewing due to the to the graphic subject matter, obviously, but in in my mind, it left no doubt that that Michael Jackson was guilty. Uh, as 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 hard was that as that was to to uh, come to a conclusion on, and given that I I, I really love his music, but uh, you know it it was an in depth examination of not only how uh, you know a victim's parents can be duped into believing their child is in safe hands, but also you know showing the lasting impact of abuse on not only the victim, but a victim's family. Yeah, I haven't seen this movie yet. Um, I'm honestly aware of the allegations. Um, I don't know what the evidence is. I haven't, again, I haven't seen the movie. But all the stuff that I've heard from people who have seen it, like yourself, uh, it's very disturbing. Yeah, and again, uh, you've got to be in a, a certain frame of mind to sit down and watch it, but uh, I definitely recommend it, even though it is uh, at times tough to watch. Uh, so uh, now, for anyone listening, if you want to avoid uh, you know, some spoilers of some older movies that came out earlier this year, uh, we're going to get into spoiler discussion now. So, so turn it off if, uh, if, you're, if you're not interested in spoilers. Uh, we're, we're, going to, uh, we're going to start with Captain Marvel. And uh, So, Sagar, what were your thoughts on, uh, on the first MCU film of 2019? I enjoyed it. It was uh, fun to watch. I thought that did a good job of doing what it needed to in giving us Captain Marvel's origin story. Uh, I thought that Jude Law played a, a very good bad guy. Uh, it was a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, I really did like how, um, again, I haven't seen it since uh, I saw it in theaters back in March, but I really did enjoy how they played that whole Jude Law and Ben Mendelsohn's characters and how they, they came off at the beginning. It seemed like Ben Mendelsohn was the evil one and, and Jude Law was the good guy, and they kind of flipped that on its head as the movie went along. I thought that was a, this was a nice little surprise. Uh, as far as, you know, this movie is, is based in the 90s, so there was a lot of, you know, 90s references, a lot of 90s jokes. I thought some of them worked, some of them didn't. One that I really liked was there was a moment where uh, a bunch of characters are in, a, are in a room and they're trying to log on to the internet and it's obviously dial-up internet at that time. 
and uh, obviously that it takes a while, so you've got that that buzzing sound going on, and everybody, the camera just does these long shots of all the characters' faces going like, what's happening here? Right. I thought that the way they went into the fact that it was taking place in the 90s, um, with those kinds of uh, comedic uh, weights and references to the 90s, I thought was a lot of fun. I thought it was very fun. Yeah, and, you know, again, another thing they did because it was based in the 90s was they used some de-aging CGI on the likes of, of Samuel L. Jackson's uh, character and, uh, you know, Nick Fury, obviously, and then also uh, Agent Coulson. Uh, I thought Samuel L. Jackson's, uh, you know, de-aging looked incredible. I mean, he looked like he was straight out of Pulp Fiction. Uh, and uh, But I, I did have some issues with Agent Coulson. I, I, I could definitely tell that... Uh, um, some CGI work was done, and, and maybe it's just because he was in fewer scenes, he wasn't as much of a priority, but, but certainly Samuel L's was, was, was incredibly well done. For sure. He looked uh, great. It was very jarring to see Nick Fury with two eyes. <laughs> right. <laughs> and of course, uh, again, we're in spoiler discussion. We, he loses one of his eyes due to a, a, a cat alien in this movie. Uh, but uh, that that's... Uh, that, Feels very weird to say out loud. Um, the uh, but yeah, I, I I enjoyed it as well. Um, I I think Marvel has has developed this formula that, uh, that they're really churning out pretty good movie after good movie. And uh, while I certainly don't think this is in its you know upper tier, I think it's a very solid uh, a solid one. And, and it also set up uh, a little bit with her character's uh, introduction into the the larger world with with Endgame. So let's move on now to. Uh, to a movie called Booksmart. This is Olivia Wilde's directorial debut, uh, coming-of-age story, high school characters. What were your thoughts on this, Sagar? Again, I loved it. It was a lot of fun uh, to see a pair of uh, high school seniors uh, recognize that they didn't have the fun in high school that they could have, and then try and make it up all in one night. Yes, I I absolutely love this as well. I think it's kind of the 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 super bad for the current high school generation. The the parents of Amy, uh, Lisa Kudrow and Will Forte, they they made a bunch of hors d'oeuvres that had references to graduation because the film ends with with the two of them graduating from high school with Molly being the valedictorian. But I thought their role in it was was hilarious as well. For sure, it was a movie in which these small details. Um, were yeah, and you know the the movie, as you said, uh, is basically two people that are coming to the realization that uh, all of the people that they thought slacked off actually got into as good of colleges as they did, even though they worked really hard. So they're really upset by that. So they want to yes have all the fun that they missed out on all in one night. And uh, their their whole goal throughout the whole movie is getting to this party. Uh, of this guy named Nick, who Molly has a crush on. And really, as soon as they get to that party onward, the last about 45 minutes of the movie, I think, is absolutely riveting stuff. Uh, Amy, the you know the best friend of Molly, she has this crush on this girl, and uh, at, at one point, she really thinks that things are, are going well, they've got a good chemistry, and, and you know maybe they're going to connect on this night. And she actually goes to the pool with this girl, and she, you know, dives into the pool, and there's this long shot of her underwater swimming with this real hopeful look in her eyes. And then as soon as she comes up from the water, she sees, uh, you know, the, the girl that she has a crush on making out with another guy, and the look on her face is just absolutely heartbreaking. For sure. That scene, uh, which was shot underwater, uh, that sequence was very... Uh, visually pleasing, I guess. It was really strong camera. Yeah, and, and the soundtrack, I thought, also was, was excellent. And and really, you know, the, the, the moral of the story was just to, to not judge a book by its cover. You know, again, Molly, the main character, being valedictorian of the school, but the movie showed she's still very fun with a good personality. Uh, you know, and again, the kids that don't seem to care about school are all actually pretty intelligent, and it's not a matter of them not caring about school, it's just that they don't only care about school. Uh, so I thought that was a was a really good message to send out as well. For sure. I also uh, like the scene in which Molly and Amy got high on uh, a drug I can't remember, 
into everything, into dolls uh, that represented everything that they uh, were against in the uh, in the patriarchy. I guess it was a very funny scene. Yes, and basically the whole scene turns into this like claymation moment for about five or ten minutes, and then as they're walking out the door, it goes back to them. Uh, you know, looking like themselves, but they're still acting like they're literal dolls. Uh, yes, that was that was a really good bit. There's there's a lot of good stuff in that. I I really enjoyed it, and you know, I I am a sucker for coming of age films, so so I did enjoy it quite a bit. The uh, the the next film I thought we'd talk about is Fighting with My Family, which is a a wrestling movie directed by Stephen Merchant. Who, uh, if none of you know who Stephen Merchant is, he's a very talented British comedian that's worked with Ricky Gervais on The Ricky Gervais Show, An Idiot Abroad, Extras, as well as uh, as well as his own show, Hello Ladies. But uh, Sagar, what were your thoughts on Fighting with My Family? I enjoyed it. I I'm not a huge wrestling fan. Um, I'm not either. <laughs> I didn't plan to go watch this, uh, but it was recommended to me by my parents actually. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I uh, yes, I, I really have no interest in the in the uh, the sport of wrestling. I, I don't watch it. I, I haven't watched it uh, pretty much at any point in my life. But um, this movie, I think, did a really good job of showing why not only people but families as well get so into wrestling and and really make it a part of their lifestyle. Uh, but. I think this movie not only hits the right notes in terms of comedy, but also in in, in serious tone and, and heart as well. Uh, you know, it, it tackles subjects like family versus individuality. The the couple of main characters in this movie are born essentially into a family of wrestlers, and their parents basically don't want them to do anything and don't prepare them to do anything in their life other than to wrestle. Um, so uh, it, it it tackles a lot of interesting subjects, and not only. You know the again the family versus individuality, but also the idea of you know pursuing your dreams and accomplishing your dreams being the only road to self worth. You know the 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 interesting thing with this movie is the the main character, the woman, she actually makes it, and the the brother, the older brother, doesn't, and they both dreamed of getting into the uh, the WWE, and and the brother has a has a really tough time throughout this movie, struggling to find any form of happiness. For sure, I was going to say that that's a good point. I like how they explored that dynamic of you know, being a sibling and having the same goal as a brother or sister, but them reaching it and yourself not. That dynamic, that disappointment, is uh, is very interesting. And I'm glad that they explored it a bit. Yeah, you know, for for a movie that just you know you think oh it's just a wrestling movie, there was a lot of more there was a lot more depth to it than you would have expected, and and. You, you can expect that from a guy as talented as Stephen Merchant, who who wrote and directed this. Uh, so yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I'm glad to hear you liked it as well. Uh, let's move on now to uh, to Avengers Endgame. Of course, this was the uh, the movie that, uh, as far as I know, topped Avatar in terms of the uh, the uh, the box office records for uh, for gross. And uh, what uh, what were your thoughts on the the culmination of what felt like, you know, I think was about 10 years of build-up uh, in the MCU. I thought it was the perfect ending. Uh, I don't love what they did with the characters and some of the resolutions I'm not a huge fan of, but the movie felt like a huge fan service in making references and calling back to older movies, and uh, I thought that it rewarded the fans that had seen every movie to that point uh, with those old references, and I appreciated that. Yeah, one of one of my favorite references was the whole scene where, uh, you know, Spider Man has that uh, that suit that has an AI installed into it, and the suit asked him in Spider Man Homecoming if he would like to engage in kill mode or something to that effect, and he said no, of course not. But then in Avengers, he actually in Avengers Endgame, he actually uses kill mode at one point. I thought that was pretty good. Um, also, of course, the uh, the scene with Captain America picking up Thor's hammer. Uh, it was in uh, it was in the second Avengers movie where we got a glimpse that maybe he was going to be able to, to to wield the hammer. And in this one, uh, you mentioned it. It's the ultimate fan service. It was one of the most hyped scenes that I can remember. For sure, I had actually forgotten about that moment in the second Avengers: uh, Age of Ultron. I hadn't remembered that at first, but then coming back uh, after seeing Endgame and talking with friends, people reminded me, and I that connected that. 
Yeah. Um, the the thing I found fascinating about this movie, though, you know, we're, we're talking more about kind of the second half and a lot of the, the 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 real hype moments. But the first hour or so is really a somber tone. You know, you're you're kind of coming from the end of Infinity War and the disaster that was the ending of that movie. And the the movie takes its time. It really felt like an indie drama for the first hour or so. Uh, and it, it felt like nothing I'd ever seen in the MCU before. It was very different because I think Infinity War was the first MCU movie where you saw the heroes lose. Right. Uh, and that obviously wasn't expected. Uh, so to come off that, the start of Endgame was just as new as the rebounding from that loss. Yeah, and uh, it certainly, um, you know, had some interesting storylines. I think the fascinating one was obviously, you know, half of existence had been wiped from the Earth at the end of Infinity War with the snap of uh, Thanos' finger. Uh, And uh, despite that, though, you know, Tony Stark as Iron Man actually was able to, you know, he still had Pepper Potts. Pepper Potts was not one of the, the people that disintegrated into Ash. And he had actually moved on and, and started a life with Pepper Potts and actually has a daughter in, in the movie. And that uh, there, was, there was actually a question on his mind as to whether or not it was worth the risk to, to try to bring everybody back and uh, with the potential risk of, of losing what he had now gained. For sure. And I think that that uh, decision that, uh, that he was dealing with is a very human one. Uh, I think it's pretty obvious to people who are watching that he would make the risk because the movie had two more hours to go. Uh, <laughs> right, uh, yeah. <laughs> but that kind of decision uh, and that process was interesting to see. Yeah, and you know the the relationship with the with the fa- with Tony Stark as a father and his his daughter was was uh, definitely sweet. There's a there's a scene where the daughter says to him. I love you 3,000, and then he, he jokingly brags about that to to uh, to Pepper. Uh, but then at the end of the movie, after, uh, you know, again, we're in spoilers at this point, uh, after, uh, after Iron Man dies, uh, there's a hologram of him. He sends a message to his family, and he tells his daughter, I love you 3,000 back. And, and frankly, that got me. I had a tear in my eye in that part. That scene, the hologram scene, was uh, devastatingly sad. Yes. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I certainly agree with you that it was a, a pretty great uh, capper to, uh, to all of those movies. And, and yes, so many great references. Uh, the fact that we went back uh, with, the, with the time travel bits to, um, you know, kind of the Avengers time, the original Avengers timeline as well was neat to see. Uh, so they, they did a lot of, of really cool stuff. I got legitimate chills when they panned back into New York in 2012 and showed the six original Avengers being surrounded, basically. That gave me uh, chills and a sense of deja vu from the uh, the 2012 movie, um, which was... I didn't expect that. Yes, and, you know, the... Captain America, the Winter Soldier, is my all-time favorite MCU film, and the fact that they went back to the elevator scene and kind of had a joke with that, where uh, he he whispers in the guy's ear, "Hail Hydra," to, so that he gives him the uh, the briefcase with the scepter. I, I, I love that little that little reference and and calling back to what I consider the the best film. For sure, when they went back to that elevator scene in Endgame, I was thinking that there was no way we could possibly top the Winter Soldier scene. Right. Sure. And uh, they didn't even try to. They took it a whole different direction. Where I loved it. Yeah, there was there's so many good bits, and I'm sure we could talk about that for ages. But uh, let's move on to uh, to our, our final movie that we're going to discuss here, and that is John Wick Three Parabellum, uh, the uh, the newest installment in the John Wick franchise. Sagar, what were your thoughts on on this one? I'm not sure what I expected, but it felt very charming. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, like Fast and Furious and uh, Men in Black, this was my introduction to the franchise. Oh, okay. So, I'm, I'm guessing you were confused at times. In the beginning, yes. Um, it was hard to figure out what's going on, exactly. Um, but once the movie picked up a bit, um, it was very entertaining to watch. Yeah, the, um, this, is, this is without a doubt one of the best action movies I've ever seen. 
I, I like it the best out of the series, even though I love every one, and I think they're all very unique and different in their own ways, which is which is fascinating. Um, but you know, the, the first thirty minutes of this movie is absolutely hectic, absolutely bonkers. You've got set piece after set piece of craziness. You've got uh, you know you've got a fight in a uh, in a in a, a horse barn. You've got a dagger fight. You've got a like a machete duel. Uh, the you know he, um, you know he he kills Boban Marjanovic with a book in the first like ten minutes of the movie. It's absolute insanity, and you know it's it's one of those things where it's not only beautiful to watch because the movie is so brilliantly choreographed and and directed, but then it's also hilarious because how over the top all this violence is. For sure, I can say with confidence that of all the movies I've seen today, this one had by far the highest body count. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's uh if you're one of those people like my dad who is uh, who's only into killing, you know, if there's plenty of killing in movies, that's the only movies he likes to watch. If you're into that sort of thing, I think you'll like this. Um the uh the, the other thing that's so impressive is the training that goes into it is is so involved, you know, Holly Berry who was in this movie, she hadn't been in the previous two. Uh she talked about it how she trained for essentially 8 months, you know, the training to to not only learn how to use all of the weapons, not only in a believable way in terms of being on film, but in a realistic way. You know, Keanu Reeves actually knows what he's doing with his gu- with the guns he's using. Um, the The training is very intense, not only in terms of, like I said, understanding the how to use the weaponry, but also understanding the the movements and the choreography that takes place, so that the director can use these long, continuous takes which makes things that much more pulsating and exciting. For sure. It was uh, brilliantly shot. Both Halle Berry and obviously Keanu Reeves were fantastic in the movie. Uh, it was fun to watch. Yeah, Holly Berry's character has a, has a couple of dogs with her that she has trained extremely well. And that was another thing. I, I listened to a podcast, The Big Picture, which is on the, the Ringer Podcast Network, where... Uh, they, uh, Sean Fennessy interviewed Chad Stahelski, the director of the films, and you know those scenes with the dogs attacking people; those aren't fake because dogs don't know what is acting and what is not acting. So you legitimately have to train those dogs to attack on command. And there's a lot of risk as far as that's concerned with dogs and um, making it so that they're so violent that then no one wants to own them afterwards, and they may have to be put down or, or anything else. Uh, but uh, the, they did a really good job with this where they had trained dog professionals already signed up to own the dogs after filming so that they could make it as realistic as possible. I didn't know. That's very interesting, actually. Yeah, and, you know, the the other fascinating aspect of this movie is it really is a, a love letter to the action genre. You know, there's a reference to The Matrix in this. Of course, Keanu Reeves uh, is in this as well as Lawrence Fishburne. You know, there's there's a fa- the famous line in, in the Matrix where uh, they say, "What do you need? Guns, lots of guns," and and that line was used in this movie as well. There's also uh, an action series, a foreign action series that uh, uh, that was made earlier this decade called The Raid. Uh, one is called The Raid Redemption, and those are are also some of the greatest action movies, kind of martial arts movies that have ever been made. And a couple of the stars of that movie were a couple of the guys that John Wick faces near the end of the film. So there, there was a lot of thought and love uh, of the genre and the history of the genre put into this film. I didn't know that, but that's very cool. Yeah, so uh, was, there, was there anything else about any of these? Any thoughts uh, about the film industry in general you had before we wrap this up? Um, not really. I've been trying to get more into movies. I actually have this goal set where I want to see a hundred movies from the 2010 decades, from the 2010s decade, excuse me, um, between 2011 and 2020. I'm at 77 so far. Okay, well that's 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 really good to hear. I um, I I watch a lot of movies every year. I actually do a uh, an end of the year uh, movie list that I that I post on Facebook. I'll try to post it on Twitter as well this year. But I'm actually going to do my own. Uh, uh, movies of the decade list at the end of this year, so I'm excited to do that. Uh, but but yeah, it uh, it has been a pretty great year for film. There's been a lot of exciting stuff to see. Well, how about this? Is there anything you're looking forward to uh, for the rest of the year that uh, that you want to see? Uh, 
the one you mentioned, the Tarantino movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, I still need to get to that. Uh, outside of that, nothing of note yet. Yeah, they. Um, yeah, I definitely recommend that one. There's also the uh, the Martin Scorsese film, uh, The Irishman, that has Joe Pesci returning for the first time that he's acted in, I think, like a decade or more. That's really exciting, and it has a de-aged Robert De Niro as well. Uh, there, there's another film called The Lighthouse by the director of The Witch, which is one of the best critically praised uh, horror films of this decade as well. This Lighthouse movie has uh, Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson. That looks really exciting. Uh, but yeah, not only is it, it is a fun time for movies, it's a you know it's going to be a fun upcoming season in the NBA and for the Portland Trailblazers. Sagar, thank you so much for coming on and, and taking the time. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to Duncan Dynasty. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, you can uh, you can subscribe to the program on iTunes. If you can leave a, uh, a rating and review, that would be greatly appreciated as well. Uh, the show is also now on Spotify. Uh, if you can uh, give the show a follow, again, a rating on there, uh, that uh, that really helps a lot. If uh, if you've got any uh, questions or comments or uh, or ideas for uh, for future episodes, uh, you can contact me. Uh, on Twitter, at Garrett Bouguet, and also uh, my email is g-bouguet at onu.edu. So uh, feel free to, uh, to uh, give me any of your uh, ideas. I, I love to hear from, uh, from the people listening to the program, and uh, enjoy the next week of the NBA calendar, and uh, have a great rest of your day. Leftovers. Or... The DMV. Number 97. Or. House cleaning. Or. Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox Internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details.